0: new books and biography. I'm Olai Cleopatra has long been one of the most intriguing and misunderstood women in the world. Philosopher Blaise Pascal once commented, Cleopatra's nose, had it been shorter, the whole face of the world would have changed. While she was indeed influential, our view of Cleopatra is often as sadly limited as Pascal's. We applaud the sex life of the last Egyptian queen, but we ignore her tenacity and political skill. Today I'm going to be speaking with the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stacey Schiff about her book, Cleopatra, which is now out in paperback. Hi, Stacey. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could kick things off just by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Um, sure. I came to um, write biography through publishing, um, into which I went directly from college thinking it was um, the place I most wanted to be. It probably still is the place I most want to be. So um, when I graduated from Williams, I think I graduated on a Friday and I started at Basic Books on a Monday where I worked for a year and then I went from there to Viking and then from there to Simon & Schuster um, which I left in 1990 to write my first book which was The Biography of Santi Superi.
0: And then can you tell us a little bit about the other books that you wrote after that before you got to Cleopatra?
1: Um, the first book was obviously this a straight life account of a pioneering author and aviator. And when I finished that book, I thought um, what I wanted to do was something along the same lines, but wildly different. So the idea of doing a family or a set of siblings or a couple was kind of what I was kicking around. Um, and I had always been a Nabokov fanatic. So, the Vera idea, the idea to write about Mrs. Nabokov or about the marriage of the Nabokovs, um, pretty much came out of that sense of wanting to write a book that was the same but different, wanting to see if you could explore, um, a a person's life through his relationship, um, wanting to see how the life and the work, the life and the work, um, were intertwined, trying to disentangle a marriage to some extent. Um, and I think that the idea of, um, and us being caught up in the entire cyclone of 20th century history was pretty appealing as well. Um, and from there, I went backwards in time to the 18th century um, to write about Ben Franklin's years in France, which are the eight years, the American Revolution, and then the peace re- negotiation that follows, so the eight and a half years that Franklin spends abroad as a very old man, which is the greatest act of Franklin's life, and I think the least understood, the least written about, and the most influential one. Um, and also a very poignant one because he does the greatest service he can do for his country, arranging for um, the financing and the arms which will win us our revolution. For which, when he comes back, he gets no thanks whatsoever. And it's a chapter on which we like to close the door, since it implies that we didn't make our um, and that we didn't gain our independence single-handedly. That the French actually were instrumental in in, in gaining us our our liberty. Um, and from there, I paused for a second to try to figure out how not to write a book about Cleopatra, which I but probably six months or a year trying to resist um, because it seemed like such a wacky proposition at the time, and then I finally
0: um, dove into it. Okay, and we're going to dig into the story of Cleopatra in just a second, but first I'd like to establish what she looked like, which is kind of a superficial point, but I think it's an important one given that in most people's minds she is Elizabeth Taylor.
1: Yeah, and I figure that, you know, years after this book is published, she will still be Elizabeth Taylor. I feel like that's an indelible image and I did feel when I started that book as if, and as I say, it was like a proposition partly because you're up against so much well-established, you know, well encrusted mythology. You know, you're up against Shakespeare, Dryden, and Shaw, and then you're up against Elizabeth Taylor. That's a pretty hard. You know, it's a pretty obdurate mass to have to work through. Um, we know very little about what she looked like except what Cleopatra looked like except what is on coins. And those are the only images we can really accept as authentic. There are obviously busts but none of the busts has ever been entirely 100% authenticated. And, and many museums were told Hellenistic busts of women whose hair um, was worn in hairstyles like Cleopatra's and who are wearing ribbons or diadems around their forehead, which would denote royalty, um, are thought to be Cleopatra, but none of them is necessarily um, a Cleopatra. And, and all of them have had their vogues and fallen in and out of favor. So the, the images on which we fall back are the coins that Cleopatra either had herself minted or were minted in um, territories she controlled. And on those coins, she looks very much like um, like her predecessors, like the Ptolemies, or her family. Um, sharp-nosed, sharp-featured, in fact, um, with a very prominent chin, uh, sunken eyes, um, a high forehead, um, very Semitic in her looks, and, and possibly looks more more so, more sort of sharp featured because she's trying to look authoritative um, and and royal um, on the coins, possibly because the engraving at the time was obviously not hugely sophisticated. Um, But the image is relatively consistent, extremely consistent from coin coin to coin, so it does seem to give us some sense of what she would have looked like. Which was not a a, a raging beauty, and by no means Elizabeth Taylor. Mm -hmm.
0: So why did you pick Cleopatra, in spite of its being such a wacky proposition?
1: Um. You know, there were so many things that kind of came together. I, I had been writing a lot about women in power. This was just around the time of the of the, the 2008 election, or the lead up to the 2008 election, and I had been writing, thinking a lot about women in power and how that had remained a stumbling block. Had that, how that had always been a stumbling block, and who were the women who managed to somehow either circumvent it or to make it work for them? Um, I was. I have long been looking for a subject or been thinking about subjects where the world changes, whether there are those kind of hinge moments in history. And Cleopatra is a perfect example there because you can feel the sort of quivering ground underneath her when she comes to power. I mean, in, in retrospect anyway, um, hers is a reign that, that looks like it's a reprieve. It looks like her story is over before it begins. It's the end of a dynasty. It's the end of an era with her death. The Hellenistic age ends. Uh, the Roman Empire begins. Um, Christ will be born 30 years after Cleopatra dies Egypt its autonomy with her death and not regain it again until the 20th century um, so many things are in flux and you can feel the hunger spiritually in the air Religious, religion wise um, it just is an incredibly fertile time and so it was partly this idea of writing about a woman in power partly um, the idea of being able to let some myths crumble, if not shatter, um, and it was probably the idea of um, grappling with a world, which is um, so much in transition and therefore so rich, and so much written about. I mean, interestingly, we have so little, we have so little primary, we have nothing primary, so little on Cleopatra, but we have such a wealth of information about her world and about the first century B.C.
0: Were there any stumbling blocks? I
1: should say, by the way, I yeah. said that there's also a great conflict, very resonant conflict there. Between East and West, mm-hmm. the East and West were defined differently in Cleopatra's day, obviously, than they are today. But you know, at the time I was working on the book, or before I was working on the book, our lives were so saturated with um, Iran, Iraq, what was happening in the Mideast, East, um, that whole tension between the right, the right-minded Republican West, and the sort of dissolute decadent East, which is very much the conflict of Cleopatra's day, except of course she typifies um, the the occult East, to of the Roman mind. So there was a real sort of modern resonance in the story too which I'm sure I didn't escape completely
0: right right. were there any stumbling blocks in writing about someone who was so famous and so encrusted in this this particular image that she's kind of seen as this bloodthirsty sexpot were there any difficulties as you researched her and wrote about her that were a direct result of this image
1: well yes because you you know you're constantly having to question uh, and you question every source but in this case um, you know you're trying to deconstruct a myth And so you really, and and you're at the mercy of subjects which you can't really question because they're 2,000 years old. So, and and very hard to, I mean, generally when I have done 20th century subjects, if I get something in an interview, I make sure that I have it from two different sources before I use it. Obviously, I couldn't do that kind of, um, I couldn't couldn't be quite so assiduous in checking things with this. So there's always a sense of having to take the sources at not never at face value, always with a certain grain of salt, sometimes with mountains of salt, or just ignore them completely. I didn't use for that reason because I felt, um, for whatever reason, that um, the Chronicler was writing to make a political point or writing um, to grind an axe or writing to please an emperor or writing fiction. So there were terrific stories that um, I just plain couldn't use because I couldn't, it wasn't even that I couldn't corroborate them; it was that I I couldn't even trust the chronicler. And 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 a good, good example of those would be, for example, the story of Cleopatra and, and dissolving the pearl um, at the dinner with Mark Antony, where she's challenged to give the most expensive dinner in history, and she dissolves a pearl, which was sort of the diamond of the day, in wine. And that story had been told about previous um, sovereigns, about previous um, decadent rulers, well before Cleopatra. So clearly that was a recycled story that she just used to prove that someone was profligate. Um, and so you can't really use it for Cleopatra. So there was that sense of always of having to keep the chroniclers in mind, remember when they were writing, for whom they were writing, where they were coming from. And, and, and one of the things that didn't occur to me until late in the game was, because I was very aware of that with Cleopatra, but I was less aware until late in the game, that that same... Uh, combing through the motives had to take place with everyone in, in the book, particularly Mark Antony, whose story also comes down to us, like Cleopatra's, from his enemies. And that this image we have of the decadent, dissolute, infatuated Mark Antony, um, who is spending so much of his time drinking um, and partying with Cleopatra, is also the, the creation of... Um, the Romans who defeated him, his countrymen who defeated him, so that there too I had to, um, or I should have been, reading um, the sources very carefully and very skeptically.
0: Mm. Ah, that sounds really difficult.
1: <laughs> it was, you know, it, it was, it was maybe a year. And i said this before, it was maybe a year into the research, or a year and a half into oh. the research, I realized that I had to do sort of a crash course in who each of the men was who writes her story, mm. and not just what century was he writing in. But you know, whom was Suetonius writing for, whom was Apian writing for, whom was Lucan writing for, and who were and who were each of these men? Mm. And you know it was like a, it was quite a mini-biography in a way, because it was you know why these what what the agendas were and and where this person was coming from had he had anyone who had you know when athenaeus writes on egypt he, he's 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 Egyptian, he's seen Egypt. but when Lucan does, he's never set eyes on egypt. so there's this there was always that sense of um, having to know who. What, what even the geography of those those lives had been.
0: So which sources were particularly helpful to you in fleshing out the story of Cleopatra?
1: Well, I, I generally would, would would go back to Plutarch for several reasons. First of all, he's Greek by culture. And second of all, although he's writing moral history or, or, or history that is meant to um, hold of a moral example of some kind, he's not writing with any political agenda. Um, as so many other people were, he's not writing um, he's not writing propaganda, and he gets his stories of Cleopatra. Um, they come to him over three generations, but he has eyewitness accounts of Cleopatra. So he would he would be the one person, I guess, I would say, whom I took always at face value. Although there are a few times, Plutarch, for example, gives us this story of Cleopatra hearing that Mark Antony's wife is about to come visit and she, and she stages these elaborate uh, crying fits and she goes on a hunger strike and she simpers and she wails. and, and it, it seems a little overblown. It seems like you know it's a typical sort of men writing off hysterical women kind of thing. So there are times where even Plutarch didn't quite pass the, the test with me. Uh, there are several accounts of Cleopatra's death and Plutarch seems very overblown. So there are times where I questioned even him. But I would say certainly Plutarch, Neo, Apian, Plutonius, you know it's hard because the people who really knew Cleopatra the best wrote almost nothing about her. So there's one line in Caesar about Cleopatra, and it basically says she was a good, obedient female. That's all he says. And this is a man with whom she had a child, obviously. That um, the tutor to Cleopatra's children, Nicholas of Damascus, goes on to work for Herod, her arch-rival. Um, so his his account could be discounted. Um, it's, there's very little from anyone, there's very little from any contemporary sources. In fact, almost everybody is, is writing later and often much later about her.
0: Were you surprised by the Cleopatra that emerged through your research or, or, did she turn out to be pretty much who you thought she was when you began writing about her?
1: You know, I generally begin with a, um, for better or worse with a, an, an empty mind with a, with a, with, a, with a few preconceived notions as I can. So I'm always surprised by what I find because I'm never really sure. I mean, it's a terrifying thing to have to sort of keep yourself from coming to any early conclusions. But I tend to try to stay um, as ignorant, in a funny way, as, as, as non-committal as I can be for as long as I can be. So I didn't realize um, until I was some way into the project how shrewd she was. I mean, it took a number of um, it took a number of times through certain stories for me to realize how. Incredibly strategic she is in her thinking. Um, I mean that would you can see that in the fallout in the Roman civil wars after the death of Caesar where you see that she's not only manipulating people but she's temporizing to great effect and she's imma- amazingly able to be patient at a time when most of us I think would have been precipitous in our in our action. And I only realized late in the game as well how how cruel she could be or how. Um, you know how much she was able to play the sort of savage politics of the time, and I think I did go back to some extent and layer a little bit of that in about her just the raw intelligence and the humor. The humor was obvious to me fairly early on. It was there's a passage in in Plutarch about Mark Antony and Cleopatra out fishing. That was probably the single passage that made me think the book was 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 doable, and the sense of humor that is obviously the, the, the cleverness and the sense of humor that are obvious in that passage. um, Repeatedly show up in the life, so that that is something that I was aware of—the sort of peel of her laughter, the velvetyness of her voice—I was aware of early on. But um, I think I came to appreciate it more and more as I worked. Her wealth came as a great surprise to me. I mean, just in terms of how she uses it, how ex- how out of proportion it is to the rest of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean world, and how crucial it is to the kinds of politics that she plays.
0: Let's talk about a bit about a, a bit about her family. It was kind of a dramatic family life, which was typical of ancient monarchies with a lot of infighting and ousting and murders. Uh, can you talk a bit
1: about her her ancestors? Yeah, she comes from, she descends from, the Ptolemies are a, a sort of, I don't know, invented dynasty, you might say. They, the, the first of the Ptolemies is a, a general, a very enterprising general and possibly cousin of Alexander the Great. And on the death of Alexander the Great in 323 B.C., Ptolemy, as he's called, realizes that Egypt um, represents the the jewel in the crown, basically, of Alexander's um, empire, and claims it for himself. And he establishes the Ptolemaic dynasty, um, so a foreign dynasty in Egypt, um, which until the day of Cleopatra is, in fact, a Greek-speaking... They're they're obviously Greek Macedonian there, a Greek-speaking dynasty. Cleopatra, we're told, is the first the Ptolemies. She's the last of the Ptolemies, but she's the first who will even bother to speak Egyptian, the language of the people over whom the Ptolemies rule. And these 300-ish years of Ptolemaic rule um, are distinguished by this (laughs) raucous, um, really bloodthirsty infighting among relatives. The Ptolemies practice sibling marriage, so all of them are obviously related, and the closest Threats to the, the the threats to the throne, which are um, the the most pressing, are obviously the closest relatives. So it makes for a very unusual family dynamic, to say the least. And in the the centuries before Cleopatra, you have almost every combination of warring siblings, parent and child, brother and sister, mother and daughter. Um, you have a, a, a husband who cuts up his child and delivers the body parts to his wife. You have, you have every manner of savagery, essentially. And what it, what distinguishes it in particular, other than the, the, the sanguine um, results, is that the women seem to be as um, every bit as meddlesome and uh, bloodthirsty as the men. And, and interestingly, there are mothers, there are women who raise armies, there are women who head armies. Cleopatra herself will raise an army. Um, there, there's huge um, involvement on the parts of the wives and the daughters in the Ptolemaic legacies. Um, I guess the best way to put it would be that because the brother-sister marriage is what determines, um, is what holds the throne, the women actually are raised, are raised in value in a way they wouldn't have been in another dynasty. So the Ptolemaic princesses um, were enormously important in their own rights and they used, that, they used that sense of their own importance Quite effectively. So in Cleopatra's immediate family, there are five siblings. The first um, is a sister who's murdered by the father after she's tried to usurp his throne. On the father's death, Cleopatra and her next youngest brother sent to the throne. Um, they're very quickly involved in a civil war, and he will die in the course of that civil war, and that's when Caesar enters the scene. Um, and at the two remaining siblings, um, the brother, Cleopatra, allegedly will poison several years later and the sister, who is equally um, shrewd and ambitious, who will try to usurp the throne of Cleopatra, is exiled to Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. And later, as a favorite of Cleopatra, Mark Antony, um, will see to it that she um, that she is murdered. So um, that was pretty much the way things fell out, even with the previous generations of Ptolemies. And if the story had played itself out naturally, Cleopatra obviously would have been... Um, she, she, she manages, obviously, to escape all the 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 problems with her own siblings, but in the normal course of events she probably would have been done away with by one of her own children. So, um, it's a pretty gruesome um, family history from beginning to end.
0: I want to come back to Caesar in just a second, but first of all, one of the things that really surprised me in the book was how Cleopatra is wicked smart. Can you discuss her education a bit? Because she spoke nine languages, right?
1: Yes, (laughs) Plutarch tells us that she speaks nine languages. He gives us some of them. The one he leaves open-ended. He never mentioned that she speaks Latin, which she, if she spoke, she must have spoken with some kind of accent. Greek would have been the language of the day, of court, of business, of international relations, certainly, and the language in which she would have been educated. And she would have known all the great Greek texts of the day. So Homer was the touchstone. And I guess the thing to stress here is that the education that she had, I'm about to describe, was the same education that Caesar or Cicero or any well educated, well born Greek would have had whether he had been born in Athens or Antioch or Rome or, or Alexandria. So it was a really universal universal elite education was one in the great Greek texts, which was to say Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, um, Homer, Homer, and more Homer. She certainly would have known large parts of the Iliad and the Odyssey by heart. Um, um and would have been able to discourse with those men on the same subjects um quoting the same verses um, and very much understanding the same wisdom. It's enormous emphasis on um, rhetoric, on declaiming properly, on being able to make a cogent and dramatic and convincing argument. Um, it's, it was interesting to me when I, when I started to work on the book that although we have no education, for, for no childhood for Cleopatra, it would have been very clear how she was educated and what she would have read, and that yet no one had written about that before. Um, if, only, I mean, if, if only because any well-born child anywhere in the Greek world um, would have come to precisely this same rather grueling um, series of um, lessons and recitations and readings. One didn't read aloud, one was read too. Which one didn't read privately, one was read too, which I thought was rather enchanting. But you could really fill in what was in her mind and what text she was familiar with, at least of what remains to us, obviously a great deal has been lost to us but um, Homer was clearly the Bible, the compass, the touchstone of the day, and the Homeric deeds and geography would have been really clear to her, as would have been Egyptian history, which um, is something which is somewhat lost to us today. There would have been a great deal of Ptolemaic history. Um, And one of the ironies, obviously, working on this particular book is that this was a paper-rich, book-heavy culture, Cleopatra's. Um, Her reign would have been Um, chronicled by court historians. There would have been an enormous amount of paper. There would have been great attestations to her deeds and those of her family. And yet, despite that richness of documentation um, uh, in the time, we have nothing to work with today.
0: Um, The story of how she met Caesar is a key part of the Cleopatra lore. Can you lay
1: out the scene for us? Um, Sure. I mean, it happens... It happens not as it does in the Elizabeth Taylor version. Um, and it was where I realized the book should start because it's a Cleopatra who so, um, is so so foreign and so un-Elizabeth Taylor-ish to us. She, as I say, is, um, has ascended to the throne in conjunction with her brother. You had to have a male consort if you were a woman. or There had to be two a male and a female uh, pharaoh on the throne. And she and her brother are very soon um, at odds with each other. And he has the upper hand. She has been exiled. Um, this is probably about 49 BC, father dies in 51 BC and has escaped Alexandria, which is where the brother is still holding Corey in the palace and has raised a mercenary army of her own out on the Eastern frontier of Egypt, just beyond the Eastern frontier. In fact, and she's camped there um, with this mercenary army in the desert um, at the time when Caesar arrives in Alexandria and Caesar is in the middle of his own civil war, um, sort of complicated intersection of two different civil wars. And, and it is at this point that she needs to basically make her way back to Alexandria to meet Caesar and to convince him that she is the Ptolemy to back, not her brother, who would have been the obvious choice because he had a larger army, um, the savior of the people, and a group of extremely canny advisors. Um, so from what we can tell, she makes her way back to Alexandria um, surreptitiously, probably going up and down the Nile. Um, and what we do know um, she, is that she is then, once she arrives in Alexandria, rowed under the um, palace walls um, in the harbor in a small boat, um, which is manned by a, a loyal Sicilian retainer named Apollodorus. And either during that trip or as she arrives at the under the palace walls at dusk, she slips into a huge leather sack, a kind of traveler sack that would have been used for... Um, large amounts of gold, or a, a, a large um, a large portion of papyrus, and she aligns herself lengthwise in that bag, and Apollodorus slings it, ties it up at both ends, and slings it over his shoulder, and delivers her into her palace, um, and therefore she makes this incredibly dramatic um, return. We don't know if she jumps out of that bag before Caesar, as, as in the Elizabeth Taylor version, but... It, it, probably the case that her, um, that this incredibly daring return made an impression on Caesar regardless of how she gets out of that bag. I mean, she would have had to make it past the river guards, past the, um, the police who patrolled the river very well, um, over the barricades, and past um, her brother's army, which would have been guarding the frontier. So it's a, it, was a, it was a pretty daring, um, it was a pretty daring return.
0: So shortly after Caesar Caesar left Egypt, Cleopatra gave birth to Caesarion, their son, which also coincided with the rise of the Nile. And this kind of began her identification with the goddess Isis. Correct?
1: Yes, I mean it's, it's really brilliant timing on her part. Other Ptolemaic women had used the Isis imagery. Isis was the pretty much the preeminent goddess of the day. She's a sort of amalgam of all the fertility goddesses of Hera, of Aphrodite, of Demeter. Um, there are images of ISIS all over Egypt at this point. Um, obviously, it's a country with a great obsession with um, fertility and fecundity since it is the breadbasket um, largely of the, of the Mediterranean. And um, it's a very powerful image. And ISIS is the goddess of all kinds of things, of family relations, of, um, of returns, um, of love. Um, and she, she Cleopatra, either has the baby... Um, just at this crucial moment, um, or says she has the baby at this crucial moment. That is how, it, that is how the birth is built, but it cements her reputation as, um, is a fertility goddess of some kind. And she does, we know, dress as Isis on ceremonial occasions, um, thereafter. She may have beforehand for all we know, but having, having, um, had a child and having had a son moreover, um by a, an eminent Roman general she really she does two things brilliantly she cements this political alliance and in the eyes of her people um, she is able to pass off um, pass herself off as the earthly incarnation of this goddess of fertility um, and thereafter and in fact depicting herself in fact um, as such in, in on walls of, of buildings but she thereafter also has a brilliant consort because she's now got the male uh, pharaoh she needs with whom to share the throne but he also happens to be a child so um, a consort who's not going to in any way undermine her agenda um, and who is also half roman which is a which is even better so she's really it's, it's the most extraordinary amount of mileage to have got out of motherhood i must say
0: after the birth she went to rome twice right and was there in the same city as Caesar's wife, which was a bit awkward, obviously.
1: Yeah, you know, she either makes it's very unclear if she makes one long trip, which would seem odd. It's, it, it's dangerous always to be away from, from your country for a long period of time in these kind of restless days. Or she makes two shorter trips. And the two shorter trips seem more likely, especially because there are, there are only certain times you can sail across the Mediterranean. Um, so it's more likely, I think, that she makes two spring trips. But she's there, yes, with. Caesarea, her son with Caesar, living in Caesar's villa in the hills while his wife was across town. Um, we know very little about how their relationship was conducted at the time, but we we, could, we know that she hasn't, couldn't have been in Rome had Caesar not invited her there. Um, we don't know why she goes. Um, it would have been in her best interest obviously to have made the trip. It's, it's It would seem to be in his blindingly poor interest for her to have made the trip. Um, and she's there when Caesar is murdered, which may have added, in fact, to the litany of complaints against him, it's, it was interesting to me that in all of the lists of Caesar's misdeeds, which account for the assassination, he, you know, comports himself as a king. He takes too many honors on himself. He pays too much attention to um, to military matters and too little to civic matters. Um, he's become too um, too lavish in his um, in with honors. Um, he's essentially behaving like an autocrat, no one ever mentions the fact that he's also concerning with the Queen of Egypt across town. And yet she, would, she so much ties in to all of those damning statements about him. Um, but it's interesting that she's just not there. And the only record we have, in fact, of her being in Rome are a few lines, like four or five lines in Cicero are all we have.
0: Can you talk a bit about the tensions between the, Greek, the Romans and in Egypt? Because I know there was a lot of racial tension. It was the conflict between East and West. It was was very interesting in the book, if you could talk about that a bit more.
1: It's a a tension on several levels. It's a tension because you're talking about, oddly enough, an advanced intellectual civilization, which is, to say, Egypt at the time, and a much more primitive, um, much more militaristic culture, on the other hand, which is obviously Rome. And, you know, when I say this was a moment of great transition – all of that's about to change, um, or at least all is about to change in terms of who is the more eminent civilization. Egypt at this point had inherited the mantle of Athens. Alexandria was the intellectual center of the world at the time, at Cleopatra's time. Um, very much the um, the opulent, gorgeous, gleaming, um, sophisticated fashion capital, the place you went to buy a book or hire a tutor. Rome is a, a provincial backwater. It's still a muddy... Um, jerry-rigged city of dark, twisting streets. Um, and S.S. Rowe always said there was no place to buy a book in Rome. Um, and so you really have this sense of a city about to come into its own, Rome, looking both scornfully at Egyptian opulence and Egyptian uh, the advanced civilization, which is Egypt, and yet enviously at that place. And you know, that's a combination I think we all know well about, that very, very toxic mixture of, of scorn and envy. Um, so, on the one hand, there's a washing, a wringing of hands, a washing of hands of all that is Eastern and somehow corrupt. And on the other hand, there's a wholesale admiration um, of all of those advances. So many intellectual advances have been made in Egypt. Um, when Seder comes back from Egypt, he brings with him a whole catalog of things, a, a better calendar, um, the idea to, to run a census. The idea of, of founding a library, all these things which were um, which had existed in Egypt for years but which were new to Rome. so there's a the tension there is really between old and new um, republican and despotic, um, Spartan and extremely lavish and the Cleopatra really the Ptolemies really epitomize all that is opulent. Um, it is their job to give the best parties and live in the greatest, most extraordinary of palaces and the Romans are still, at this point, priding themselves on the simplicity of their lives. Um, of course, all of that will change, and within a hundred years of Cleopatra's death, um, not only will the master craftsmen all have moved to Rome, but Rome will have become—Rome will begin to become as opulent and decadent as, as had been Alexandria.
0: One of the things that really came across so well in the book was how. Cleopatra manipulated that opulence to kind of shape her persona and the public's perception of her, which is really obvious in her journey into Tarsus to meet Mark Antony in 41 BC. Can you talk a bit about
1: that? Well, that's the scene the that Shakespeare steals um, wholesale from Plutarch. Um, and for good reason. It's Cleopatra has this at the end of the this is the fallout of the, um, the fight for Caesar's mantle after his death. And the two obvious candidates in the field at this point are Octavian, uh, who ultimately defeat Cleopatra and Mark Antony, who has taken control of the East. And she's been summoned repeatedly to meet Mark Antony and she has very cannily resisted those summonses. Um, but at this point she can resist no longer. And so she, either on her own, of her own initiative or at the suggestion of Mark Antony's henchmen, decides to make this extraordinary appearance when she, um, when she finally does go to call on Mark Antony and Tarsus, which is southern Turkey today, and she um, gets herself to the north side of the Mediterranean, where she dolls up some local ferry boats in in the most extraordinary fashion with purple sails and um, silver oars which clatter and glint in the sun, um, and she uh, dresses herself as Aphrodite in golden robes and reclines on her on her ship. Um, she's attired her her. Made her maids as Cupids and nymphs. She has a, an orchestra on board. Incense spewing in great clouds into the air. And she very slowly, as this kind of divine apparition, makes her way um, up the river to Tarsus to meet Mark Antony as this sort of goddess incarnate. Um, and you know, you can imagine in a in a, in a world that was as um, that was as simple and as um, imagistically st- starved, as was this one. I mean, there was no there was no TV, but this was a pretty technical or incarnation of things. Um, what an impression she would have made! And it, it seems as if she purposefully made this procession quite slowly, so as to let the word um, let the word arrive in advance of her that this um, Aphrodite had come to call on Mark Antony um, um, in Turkey, and and in fact that is how it is built: is that you know, she arrives as a, as as this goddess, um, Antony is deserted, there's so Plutarch tells us. He's doing business in the marketplace, and the entire city has essentially emptied so that it can run out to uh, witness the arrival of this extraordinary apparition. poor Mark Antony is uh, is left to be left alone on his on his on his tribune while everyone else has gone off to um, to see, see this extraordinary visit.
0: I'm going to pull back a little bit and ask a big picture question, because if people want further details, they just need to read the book. But in Cleopatra, you write, she convinced her people that a twilight was a dawn, and with all of her might, struggled to make it so. Can you expound upon this? And also, what do you view as her legacy?
1: Um, sure. I mean, she, as I say, when she comes to power, if you look at it from, from yeah, the 21st century, um, it's all, the, the jig is up. The Romans have, um, you know, this is one of those moments where you, when you're living in history, you, you obviously have no perspective, but at this point, when the point she comes, at the point where she comes to power, the Romans have gobbled up almost the entire Eastern Mediterranean. She's the that the, the Ptolemies are the sole um, major power with any autonomy, um, and it's just a matter of time before Rome essentially takes over. Um, how clear that would have been to her, you know, is obviously a a question of of some debate, but her father had spent all of his life attempting to make peace with Rome, to hold Rome at bay, to pay Rome off. This was, and of that she would have been completely aware. So that she's holding back the tide. Um, the idea of holding back the tide was clearly the single most important thing on her agenda. Maintaining her hold on an empire in an age where you, where this colossal superpower. Um, was honing in on you, was surrounding you on all sides. Um, so that's why I say there's a, you know, she's trying to convince her people that times are as good as ever. She affects an intellectual renaissance in Alexandria. Um, she's essentially trying to rescue an economy that is faltering all at a time where the cloud of Rome is on the horizon um, really more ominously than it had ever been. Um, and, I, and, you know, in terms of a legacy... There, the, the legacy, I suppose, is the anti-legacy. It's had Cleopatra survived, had Cleopatra not been defeated, um, the world would have looked entirely different. But there's no; she makes no lasting change in Egypt. She simply holds off the inevitable for a remarkable 22 years. Um, had she and Mark Antony not been defeated, um, all of you know, Christian history would have been would have fallen out differently.
0: Thank you so much for talking to us today about Cleopatra, which is now out in paperback. Any idea who you'll be writing about next?
1: I am working on a book about the Salem witch trials, with which I would welcome any help whatsoever. It's a far cry from Hellenistic Alexandria. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you. Stacey Schiff is the author of Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov, winner of the Pulitzer Prize as well as Saint-Exupéry, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and a great improvisation, Franklin, France, and the Birth of America, which was winner of the George Washington Book Prize and the Ambassador Book Award. Her latest book, Cleopatra, is now out in paperback. I'm Nine Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.